So for those who've been with us for the past nine weeks, we've been in a series which is really unlike us. We've been talking about this topic for nine weeks, but we said this in week one of the series, it's called Family Matters, and we said we're going to talk about family matters because we believe that all families matter. We believe that your family matters. And so we have spent nine weeks talking through from a foundation of of relationships all the way through different nuances in dating and and marriage and kids and all the stuff that comes with it, kind of culminating with today's message. And and we said a couple of things the, the first week. We said, first of all, the situation might not be as bleak as it's been made out to be. Uh, for many of us, we heard the statistic that over 50% of, of marriages end in divorce in the United States. 50% of marriages end in divorce, and we realize that that's not the case at all. Actually, a recent study was done that shows it's more like one-third of marriages end in divorce. And if you have a church background and you're trying to do things God's way, actually the number is, is much, much lower. So there's some encouragement there, and yet we all realize that there's a lot we could still be doing. Uh, there's a lot we could do to make our marriage and our families better. Uh, so we had some good news up front, but we also said this, because I know for a lot of us, and maybe you're new to church, or maybe it's been a long time since you've been involved in church, and we kind of get involved and we say, okay, I want to do things, right? I want to know as a husband, I want to know what it means to lead my family, I want to know what it means to, to do things God's way, but I wish there was just like one good example that we could look at, and we said it would be great if we had that example in the Bible, because then I could go to the, to the young man that we're talking to and say, hey, here's what I want you to do. I want you to follow this example. And if you just do family like they're doing family, then everything's going to work out. But we look at the Bible, and a lot of the narratives in the Bible aren't families that are really, really doing it right. In fact, there's a lot of dysfunction in there that it would, would make our families look really, really healthy. Uh, we said some of the families here are actually like, they'd be great on a Jerry Springer show. Like you have, you have brothers killing each other. You have mom deceiving, the uh, wife deceiving husbands. Like you have all this stuff that's happening. And there's a lot of dysfunction happening in the family. So we said if there could just be like one or two good examples, and there aren't a lot of good stories. We said there's a lot of great teaching. Uh, God gives his teaching saying, here's how you want to conduct your family. In particular, we spent a lot of time looking at Ephesians chapter 5 and saying, here's the responsibility of husbands, here's the responsibility of wives, here's the responsibility of parents, here's the responsibility of children. There's a lot of great teaching, but not a lot of great examples. But week six of the series, we did look at one small example. And we said, here's this example of, of a grandmother named Lois and a mother named Eunice and her son named Timothy and how there's a legacy of faith that was passed on from grandmother to mother to, to son and then we said, ultimately, that's what our desire is. But today, and I said in week six, I said, wait till week nine. We're going to look at one more good example. And this is one of my favorite stories. I love that we can finish off this series with, with this story. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open, open up to the book of Ruth. And we're going to get into this this morning. We're actually going to kind of fly through this story pretty quickly because there's a lot of verses to tell the beginning part of this story. Uh, and so really, our goal this morning is going to be a little bit of a different message our goal this morning is going to go through these verses, kind of talk through the story a little bit, explain a little bit of what's happening in the story. And then at the end, I want us to pull three things I think that can be very applicable to our individual walks of life right now in our families. Three things that kind of glean from this, three takeaways from this, this story, and then we'll get to what the commitment form is all about. So if you have your book, Bibles open to the book of Ruth, Ruth chapter 1, we're going to read the first um, 17 verses or 18 verses or so. It says in Ruth chapter 1, verse 1, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. A couple things as we begin this, this kind of sojourn in this story. 
A couple things we see in the first verse. Uh, how many of you have ever been reading a, a book, uh, any book, not necessarily a book of the Bible, but you're reading a book, you're reading some sort of story, and they introduce a lot of characters up front. And, and it's hard, like the first few chapters, you're trying to remember who's who. And it's really hard to remember all the names. Is anybody, or is it just me? Like, yeah, you're reading a story, and there's all these names. You're trying to keep them. Wait, who's married to who, and what's going on there? Well, we're going to get introduced in a relatively short order. We're going to be introduced to six key figures in this narrative. And so we're going to work hard together to kind of remember who everybody is and how the whole family tree fits together. But it says about first, there's, there's a man. We'll be introduced to him in just a second. He's in Bethlehem. He's, he's an Israelite. He's a Jewish person. He's in Bethlehem. But there's a famine in the land. And because there's a famine in the land, it means there's not enough food. And, and so they start to look elsewhere for, for God to take care of their needs. He says, I need to take care of my family. There's not enough food here. And so I'm going to begin to look. And they found out in the country of Moab, which for them, it wasn't an incredibly long journey. For us, it wouldn't be a journey at all. It was about a 40-mile trip. For them, they didn't have access to vehicles. It wasn't like, let's go and hop over to going to Tampa for us. Uh, for them, it would have been a little bit of a trip. Distance would have been an issue. Also, there's some mountains in the area. So it would have been a trip. But he heard that over in Moab, that they had food, that everyone's being taken care of. So he said, let's go ahead. I need to take care of my family. So let's go for a season to this country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons, to sojourn. Now, literally, as a sojourner, it means we're going to be here for a very short, time, short term. We're going to be literally temporary aliens, kind of resident aliens in this country so that we can work, so we can take care of our needs until God blesses and we can return home. So initially, and we're going to see some words that are used that says how their trip changed, but their plan initially was to be sojourners, be kind of these resident aliens for a short season, but it, but it doesn't end up being that way. So in, in Ruth, verse 1, we get into that. We meet the man, his, his wife, and his sons. But we actually, in verse 2, we get their names. It says, the name of the man was Elimelech. It's a nice name, Elimelech. Everybody say Elimelech with me. Elimelech. Does anybody have a kid named Elimelech? Now, everyone's looking for, like, these original names. No one's going with Elimelech. So, so, so the, name is, the, the name of the father is Elimelech, and his wife is Naomi. That's a whole lot easier to say. Everybody say Naomi. Naomi, much easier to say. We wish we were all like that. And then they have two sons, Malon and Kilion. I won't make you say their names. Uh, so, so in the family tree right now, what we have is we have Elimelech the father, and we have Naomi the mother, and we have Malon, and we have Kilion. And the four of them have traveled about 40 miles or so from, from where they're at in Bethlehem over to Moab. And they're setting up shop, just what they think is going to be a temporary trip for them to take care of our needs. And let's set up shop in Moab for a short season with plans to return. But then it says later on in verse 2, it says, They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab to, to sojourn, but it says they remained there. And we're actually going to find out they actually remained there for quite some time. So they went there, there to sojourn, but they end up remaining there. And then it says in verse 3, But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. So it starts off Elimelech and Naomi and Malon and Kilion, but now Elimelech's gone. And so for the mother, for Naomi, all she has now left is the two sons, Malon and, and Kilion. Verse 4 says, because they've been there for a while now, um, it says, They took Moabite wives. The name of one of them was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. And they lived there about ten years. So what has happened is, is they set up shop, and, and they still don't have food back home, and so they keep trying to work for their family. And so eventually the two sons, Malon and Achillean, kind of look at each other, and they say, well, there are no Israelite women here, and they're Moabite women, and wink, wink, nudge, nudge, I'm kind of finding some I'm attracted to. And so they go and take for themselves 
women that were from the country of Moab. Now, if, if you know anything in the Old Testament about the, the Jewish people, the, the Israelites, uh, they're commanded at a couple of places, particularly in Deuteronomy, uh, in particular areas where God said, in this instance, we do not want you to marry outside of, of your people. And some people today get carried away and misunderstand what that scripture is actually teaching. See, God was a jealous God. He wanted his people only to worship him. The idea was not to, because the Jewish people were both Jewish by, by nationality, but also by faith. And it wasn't saying, I don't want you to marry outside of your nationality. It was, I don't want you to marry in a way that your hearts are going to be turned towards these foreign gods. So in Deuteronomy, they're commanded not to marry with a particular people group because God knew there was a chance their hearts were going to be turned towards these gods. However, when it came to the Moabites, that wasn't the case at all. There was nothing in the law that said what these men were doing is wrong. And in fact, God's going to honor what they did in a, in a huge way. We'll see at the end of the message. Even though it wasn't illegal according to the law, in their custom, in their generation, it was highly looked down upon. See, a lot of the Moabites, Moabites as a whole, their people group worshipped a plurality of gods. They worshipped a bunch of gods. And so as they went into Moab, there's a chance that they get caught up in the country and they get, start marrying Moabite women and there's a chance their hearts could be turned. But because of the teaching, because of the discipline, because of the legacy being passed on by both Elimelech and by, by Naomi, that is not the case. And so what happens is the two men, Malon and Kilion, end up marrying Ruth and Orpah. Uh, Ruth is actually married to Malion, and Orpah is, is married to Kilion. Uh, that's not a typo. It is Orpah, not Oprah. However, I did not know this. First ever, someone actually told me that when Oprah was actually named, her mom was actually naming her after Orpah, and they mistyped it on the birth certificate. I did not know that. I don't know if that's verified or not, but that's what I, what I heard after the first service. But, but so you have Ruth and you have Orpah marrying these, these two men, these two brothers. And it says in verse 5, both the husbands, Malon and Kilion, die. We don't know what happened. We know they got married and eventually they die. So the woman, being Naomi, was left without her two sons and without her husband. If you're married, I hope, I hope, I hope you have a good relationship with your in-laws. There's a couple of ways this can work out. Uh, we can either have a, a really poor relationship with our in-laws, and, and then it's kind of like, well, my, my in-laws, they love their daughter. For me, they love their daughter, but, and this isn't the case for my family. I'm saying this, this is a possibility. They love the daughter, but they don't like me at all. Or, my in-laws love both of us, but it's their daughter. They love her more. I'm okay with that. Or, there's some guys I know, and guys, I don't, I don't, don't raise your hand if this is you, but there's some people who would say, listen, my parents love my wife more than they love me. <laughs> In fact, if anything ever happened here, my parents would disown me and take her with them. Like, I'm, sometimes that happens. But for the most part, what happens is, and we realize this is the kind of way it is, that most in-laws care more for, it's not that they don't like their, their son-in-law or their daughter-in-law, but they care more for their children because they were there when they were born and they raised them, they saw them take their first steps, and there's a natural love and affection towards their daughter or son that might not be present totally for the in-law. Hopefully there's a lot to it. So what has happened is, is Malon and Kilion is gone, Elimelech was already gone, and so you have the mother Naomi, and she's now left without any family tie to that area at all. She has daughters-in-law who she genuinely loves. And we're going to see in just a second. They have a very unique relationship. But there's nothing, there's no family tie anymore to the area that really is tying her back to Moab. And she probably does have more extended family back home anyway. So in verse 6, what seems logical, in verse 6 it says, 
So she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she's out working in the field, and she starts to hear rumors, hey, back home, the famine has stopped. God's blessed us again. There's food back home. So there are only two reasons I was still in this area. One is because of my immediate family, who now is all gone. And the second thing tying me back here is there's food, and there wasn't food back home. And now there's food back home. And so it just makes absolute sense now for me, as, as, as a wife who's lost her husband, who's lost her sons, to return home. So it says she starts to do that. Verse 7, um, she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. So the daughters-in-law, we don't know how long has expired, but the daughters-in-law say, we're going to help you on the trip. And they start to journey from Moab back to, back to Bethlehem. But it says this, verse 8, But Naomi said to her two, to, to her two daughter-in-laws, Go return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you've dealt with the dead and with me. So they travel for a season. They travel for a while. And then Naomi says, okay, we've gone far enough. It's time for the two of you to return back to your lives. You have lives. You have, you have family back home. Both of them, uh, they had separate, you know, they weren't related before this. So they had separate moms and dads. Their, their parents were still alive. They still had a chance for a future back home in Moab. And she says, you guys have done enough. You've dealt great with me. You've dealt great with, with my sons when they were still alive. Let God deal with you in the same way. It's time for you to return home. The Lord grant, verse 9, the Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. We're praying her hope is that you find a husband after that. Then it says, she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices, and they wept. Talk about a unique relationship. When the daughters-in-law would look at their mother-in-law, and she goes to kiss them goodbye, and they cry out because they love her so much. They're literally tears streaming. Because they don't want to leave her. Because there's such a genuine bond and affection towards her. And they said, verse 10, they said, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? See, according to the, to the Jewish faith, one of the things that was supposed to happen is if, because a lot of times young men would die at a younger age, if, if a person was left as a widow and there were brothers that were involved still in, in their lives, the brothers were supposed to take on the, the wife to take care of her and to support her. And Naomi's saying, I don't, I don't have any more children. The two children I had are gone. And so she says, turn back, my daughter. She's going away for I'm too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. She says, what are you going to do? Like, like, I don't have any other sons. My two sons are gone. I have no one to take care of you. You're out on your own, and if you return with me, there's no one to marry you. I don't have any more kids, and, and I can't have any more kids. And even if I could have kids, you're grown. What are you going to do? Refrain from marrying until these young kids grow up? Like, that's crazy. Obviously, you're not going to do that. She's, preventing, she's presenting a convincing argument to say to her two daughters-in-law, I love you, I appreciate all that you've done, but it's time for you to return home. And she says at the, at the end of that, it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. She says, I, I hate the fact that, that I've lost my husband and now I've lost my sons, but I hate it even more for your sake. 
Because I know I've, I've lived a long life. I've enjoyed my life, but, but you're now left at a young age as, as widows, and I hate that uh, for you. So go back, return. She's pre- presenting this convincing argument. And it says in verse 14, Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. So Orpah, in kissing her mother-in-law, is kissing her goodbye, saying, Okay, I understand now. I do have to return home. But then it says about Ruth, but Ruth clung to her. So Orpah leaves, and now it's just the two of them. Out of the six people that started this whole thing, Amalan and Kilian are gone, and, and now Orpah is gone as well. And it just now is Naomi and Ruth. And Naomi turns to Ruth, and she says in verse 15, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Taking only verse 15, we see that at least somewhere along the line in their marriage, that, this, that, the, that the wives, the Ruth and, and Orpah, have at least taken on the, the Hebrew God as, as their God because Naomi says, see, even your sister-in-law has gone back to her people. She's returned to her gods. Go follow her. This is what you're supposed to do. But verse 16, and this is the key part of what we want to dig into. But Ruth said this, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For wherever you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Now, I know sometimes, maybe you grew up and, and your children at a young age, maybe they got some of these knickknacks. And a lot of times the knickknacks uh, will have that verse on it. Wherever you go, I'll go. Wherever you lodge, I'll, go, I'll lodge. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. And it sounds great, and it's really cute on a little ornament or a knickknack or whatever. But when we read the whole story, we see there's a whole lot more to this story than just a cute little knickknack can cover. These are, these are daughters-in-law who have no physical tie into their mother-in-law. They both have parents back home. And, and we have this great story of, of Ruth following her mother-in-law and saying, I'm going to be with you. Wherever you go, I go. Wherever you lodge, I'll lodge. Your people are going to be my people. Your God will be my God. Like, that's an incredible story. But when we take into all that she is sacrificing, it becomes even bigger. Because at some point, she had to have a conversation with her own parents. Said, Mom and Dad, I love you, but my, my, my mother-in-law needs me right now. And so I'm going to leave our country, I'm going to leave our people to, to go be with her. And they're not going to be fully understanding of that probably. And she's really surrendering at this point uh, her hope for a future and what it meant. You know, maybe someone in her country would, would take her as a wife and she'd have kids and all the stuff that came with it. Like that was still, I'm sure, part of her longing as a woman, as, as, as a, a person who wants to be a mother. She wanted all of those things still that she had not realized. But she says, I have a calling that I have to be obedient to. This series has been laying a foundation for us from the very beginning. See, wherever we're at in, in our lot in life, there's something we're supposed to be doing right now. There's something we're supposed to be obedient to right now. And if it's my role as a husband or your role as a wife or my role as a child or my role as, 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 a, as a parent, child, whatever, if it's my role as a married person, if you're single, your role as a, as a single person, there are steps we're supposed to be taking to be obedient. And that's a challenge. And as you try to pass on a legacy of faith, it becomes even more challenging. Even when it comes to our children, our own children, our own biological or even adopted children, it's a challenge in and of itself to do that. But it's even more so when we say, not only was Naomi passing on a legacy of faith to her own sons, which happened through Malon and Kilion, but she also somehow passes on a legacy of faith to her daughters-in-law, especially Ruth, who says, wherever you go, I'm going to go. Wherever you lodge, I'm going to lodge. 
your people are now going to be my people, and your God is the one who I'm going to follow. So she's passing on this legacy of faith. So three things real quick, three takeaways we can see from, from the book of Ruth that I want us to, to take and try to remember and, and take with the Stone families. Number one, when we commit to God's plan for our family, it becomes easier to pass on a legacy of faith. When we commit to God's plan for our family, it becomes easier to pass on a legacy of faith. We've talked about this a number of times in this series, but our children are watching us, and they listen to what we have to say. Like, we can tell them at a young age, I want you to go to church, I want you to memorize scripture, I want you to do this, I want you to read your Bible every day. They're watching us more than they're listening to us. When we say, I'm committing to God's plan for my family, when I say right now to my kids, I'm committing to God's plan for my family, it becomes easier to pass on a legacy of faith. I'm still not saying it's easy. There's still a challenge. And every day it's by grace and only by God's grace that we are sustained. I'm not saying at all that it's easy. But as we're consistent in following God's plan for our family, it becomes easier to pass on that legacy of faith because our children are watching and saying, I know what you're saying, but I want to watch you and see if you actually believe what you say. How do we do that? We say, well, I believe God has a plan for my family. And I have to do my part, especially as, as in my role as a husband and as, as a father, to say, I want to do my part to make sure my family is following God's plan. I'm not doing it on my own. I'm not trying to make my own course, but saying, God, what is your plan for my family? Maybe some of you have grown up and your kids have, have grown up. Maybe they're even gone. You say, well, I didn't exactly in their early years provide a good plan or a, a picture of, of what family is supposed to look like. That's okay. But it takes for us right now, part of, of God's plan, we can't judge the past. The past doesn't have to define us. It affects us, but it doesn't have to define us. So we go back, we have a conversation, say, I should have done a better job of showing you what it actually means to follow Jesus. But now I'm coming to you to apologize for that. When we follow God's plan for our family, it becomes easier to pass on a legacy of faith. Second one, this is a big one. When things don't go as planned in our life, and they often don't, when things don't go as planned in our life, we can't wait for someone else to fix it. How many of you admit there's some people in your family that are jacked up? They're messed up. Like, we all have people that are just like that. Here's the thing. Because for some of us, what happens is we're at some family barbecue, and it might have been five years ago, and it's someone that we used to care about, maybe even our own, our own child or maybe a, an aunt or an uncle, but they do something that is so crazy, that's so outrageous, that the rest of the family wrote them off, and you wrote them off as well, and it's been five years since you talked to them. You can sit there and say, well, it's not my responsibility. I didn't do anything wrong, and you're absolutely right for the most part. You're absolutely right. But we can sit here and be so concerned with being right that we lose relationships. This is the big idea. Just because I don't think I'm wrong doesn't mean I'm not the one who can make it right. Just because I don't think I'm wrong doesn't mean I can't be the one that makes it right. See, what happens is, is someone messes up and, and everyone takes a step back because none of us likes conflict. Everyone stay, takes a step back and says, well, they messed up. Someone should probably go and fix that, but that someone has to be someone else. And so we all get back and we'd be passive, let someone else handle it. And eventually that person is just written off and no one wants to talk to them and no one wants to spend time with them. And we lose relationships because of this. And sometimes it's not just family. Sometimes it's close friends and we're getting along and all of a sudden that person did something you don't like and you write them off and you're waiting for them to come apologize for what they did, just because you don't think you're wrong 
doesn't mean you can't be the one to make it right. Ruth could have very simply looked at this whole ordeal. She was grieving. She lost her husband. She was grieving. She wasn't the one that had to make this right. She could have said, man, I know my, my mother-in-law, she's, she's really going through some hard time, and, and she probably thinks God's out to get her. She lost her husband and, and her two sons, and she doesn't have a whole lot left. Now she has to go, like, like, I'm sure she's struggling through this, but I'm struggling too. Someone else has to step up here. Maybe she can go home, and she'll meet some family members who'll take care of her. It has to be somebody else. It's not my responsibility. But had Ruth thought that way, she would have missed out on doing the right thing which not only resulted in her just, there, there's, there's, sometimes there's greatness, great things happen just because you do the right thing. Sometimes that itself is its own reward. But she also would have missed out because the third point in all of this, God's greatest blessings are often a result of small steps of obedience. See, Ruth, this whole thing was taking a small step of obedience every step of the way. And every time that Naomi tries to talk her out of it, she could have said, you know what, you're right. In that moment, it didn't seem like a big deal, but it was. God was using these small steps of obedience in her life that we're going to see in just a little bit to orchestrate something greater in her life and not just in her life. Well, today, we're asking you, because a lot of times small steps of obedience lead to greater steps of obedience. We're asking you guys as, as a church and, and maybe you're, you're relatively new. Maybe you haven't been here for a bunch of this series. Maybe it's not time for you to sign this just yet. I'd encourage you to go back and listen to some of the previous podcasts before you do that. But go ahead and take this out now. It's time to look at this. We're asking you to take a, a small step of obedience that's going to lead to greater steps of obedience. Family matters commitment. Believing that our family matters, we pledge to God, to our present, and to our future families to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. It's from Ephesians 5.21. And to commit to do the following. Now, each of these will not be applicable to you. For instance, some speak to husbands, wives, you don't want to initial that one. Some speak to wives, husbands, you don't want to do that. But in every area where it, where, where it fits into where you're at right now, and there's something for everybody, we want you, if you're up to it, if this is where you're at right now, to initial it, and, and this is between you and God. You keep this, you sign it. This is between you and God. Going through these real quick. Uh, as a husband, I commit to love my wife as Christ loved the church, willing to lay my life and my pride down for her. Husbands, if that's you and if you want to initial that, go ahead and do that. As a wife, I commit to honor and practice biblical submission to my husband. If you weren't here for that message, it's not nearly as bad as it sounds. Go back and listen to that. Uh, some of you are like, wait a minute, what's that all about? And go back and listen to it. It's not like that because uh, right before that, Ephesians 5.21 says we submit to each other out of reverence for Christ. Uh, as a wife, if that's you, if you're not sure about that, go listen to the message. But if that is you, go ahead and initial that. As children, we commit to obey and honor our parents. As a dad, I commit to not provoke my children, but to raise them and instruct them in the, in the Lord. And as a mom, I commit to teach my children about Jesus and model what it really means to follow him. If those are you... Go ahead and initial each of those individual areas. As a single person, I commit to date God's way, being careful to consider who I date and how I date. If that's you, go ahead and initial that. As a married person, I commit to hold true to my vows, be faithful to my spouse, and take the idea of divorce completely off of the table. If that's you, you can initial that. For those who maybe don't come from a traditional family where you have immediate family right here, that's okay. There's something for you too. 
But even if you do have those traditional families, I commit to be involved in community and to find a way to, to find a way to love that community and in doing so display the love that Christ has for them. Maybe you're a, an adult who never had children and you have a chance to be a mentor in a child's life and to love them the way Jesus loved them. If you commit to do those things, initial those, sign it at the bottom. If you want to do that later, you can do that later as well. But the idea is, is that we take small steps of obedience that lead to bigger steps of obedience that eventually lead to the blessings of God in, in my life. It doesn't take a whole lot to initial or even assign our name. It doesn't take a lot of energy or anything to be exerted for that. Even with a long name like Gallowitz, it doesn't take a whole lot to commit to that. But that small step of obedience leads to a bigger step of obedience, saying, okay, now I want to actually live these things out. And the story, I believe, reading it, Ruth really has nothing at all to gain by doing this. Ruth says, I'm just, I'm just doing what I think is the right thing, and my mother-in-law needs me right now, and so I'm going to go follow her, and I'm going to help her out. So she goes, and she takes these steps of obedience. And the crazy thing is, she doesn't know this, but when, when she returns with, with her mother-in-law, she actually, uh, through family, she, she meets a person, and I don't have time to get into the whole story. It's an incredible story. Read the whole book of Ruth. It's an incredible story. But Boaz comes into her life as, as a redeemer to her, and, and it's an incredible story, a real picture in this book of, of the grace of what Jesus does coming into our life. It's a beautiful picture of what he's trying to accomplish. And, and so Ruth uh, meets what she's looking for. She meets her, her future husband. She eventually has a child. All of these things she wasn't looking for when she did it. She wasn't looking out for personal gain. She's just taking small steps of obedience. But God is blessing her. But I want us to see this because this is part of a bigger story, a bigger narrative that we see. Because it's not just God saying, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you what you always wanted. You're going to have a husband who can take care of you. You're going to have a child now. But if you have your Bible, slip over to the book of Matthew. Because Ruth was part of a bigger story. A bigger story that she had no idea that was transpiring. But the book of Matthew actually see one of two places in the New Testament where the, there's a genealogy of Jesus. There's, there's the whole, how he was born and his whole bloodline, where he came from. And it says this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, Matthew 1.1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah became the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram. And Ram, the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon. And Salmon, watch this, the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz, Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. Ruth is put in the genealogy of of Jesus' story. This Moabite woman who had no business even being there is written in the story. Why? Because she was obedient. She was obedient when she didn't see the big picture. She didn't have any understanding. In fact, her family's trying to, probably trying to talk her out of it, saying, why are you doing that? That's crazy for you to leave, uh, to leave us, to leave your, your hometown. Like People know you here and you have a future here. But she says, I'm going to be obedient. And God gives her all that she ever wanted. But God also writes her in the narrative of the greatest story the world's ever seen. And this Moabite woman who, who had no, there's, there wasn't a big deal about her life, all of a sudden is written into the genealogy of the Messiah, the one who's coming to save the world. When it comes to our families, like we think these small things we're doing today 
We think because I could be spending some time working at home, but instead I'm going to spend some time, some time engaged with my child. Because we're going to go away on this trip this week when I could have been doing something else, but I want to spend this time right now. We think these are just small steps of obedience. It's not that big a deal. But we never know how those small steps of obedience can lead to bigger steps of obedience that can eventually lead to this amazing blessing of God in our life. Listen, I know when it comes to family, it's tough. I know there are challenges every day. But just because it's tough, just because there's challenges, does mean we shy away from the responsibility. Does mean we say, God, I don't want to be obedient anymore. I'm going to keep doing things my way. It means at that moment we step up even more and say, God, right now the going is tough. Right now the going is hard. But I'm going to keep being obedient because I believe that in small steps of obedience, you're going to be honored. And that eventually through those small steps, bigger steps will result. God, I believe sometimes obedience itself is its own reward, but I believe also that there's blessing on the other side because I want to do what you have for my family. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the last over two months being able to talk through various topics when it comes to family and relationships and, and, and all that entailed. God, I thank you that your desire is, is to bless our families. And sometimes it's not exactly the way that we want, but that, God, you see fit to bless our family in sometimes extravagant ways. God, I pray that for our church family right now. I pray as we prayed just a little while ago, if there are fractured relationships, if there are people that aren't communicating right now, I pray that there'd be restoration in that relationship. God, I pray for, for those who, who are, are maybe drifted far, far apart. Friendships that have been lost and, and family members, moms and dads and, and children that don't talk anymore. God, for there to be true reconciliation. And God, even as, as Ruth is a beautiful picture of really the gospel going, not just to the, to the Moabite people, but literally the gospel going to the whole world. God, you used this Moabite woman to bring forth the line of Jesus, the one who is going to redeem all of mankind. God, I pray that we would be used in a small part of your greater story. For God, we genuinely love you. We want to see you increased. For in your son's name we pray. Amen.